theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you today? Oh, well, I'm trying to stay warm. It is winter break and we are... We're working. We're working. We're but we're working. doing something that we love. Yes, this has become a rather a, a passion, I think, for us. Way to find some meaning in all of this pandemic world and the struggles. But there are some really glimmers of hope. And we have seen that with the people we've talked to. Absolutely. And we get this opportunity to share with our listeners. And this morning, we're going to talk to Kalana Sanders. And she has worked at every grade level, P-12, higher education. She's worked with a wide range of students, abilities in multiple capacities. In addition, she's a doctorate candidate. So therefore she has this huge, broad perspective on education. So I'm looking forward to getting her take on remote instruction, especially with at-risk students. Remote instruction is difficult at any grade level with any student. And it's multiplied when we start talking about barriers of inequality, students with special needs and exceptionality. So I'm looking forward to learning a lot today. Absolutely. Kawana Sanders has spent her 24 year career as a teacher, instructional leader and administrator working to close the equity gap and setting high expectations for all students. She has worked for the last 11 years as an administrator and is currently a principal of an alternative learning center for middle school students. Having worked as an educator, mentor, and facilitator since 1996, she has demonstrated strong expertise in instructional leadership, curriculum planning, and program development. She holds a national board teacher certificate and in 2019, she was one of six members of the Northern Illinois University College of Education's Marguerite Key Fellows. She is currently working towards her doctorate, as you said, in interdisciplinary leadership at Governor State University with a concentration as a superintendent. Wow. Welcome to the show, Kawana Sanders. Thank you all for having me. I'm so honored to be a part of the work that you guys are doing. Sounds exciting. Good, yeah, good morning. We're excited to talk about you. We were just talking about your vast roles that you've worked with every grade level in many capacities mm -hmm. and with a variety of students and parents. Can you tell us about your current role and describe the students that you currently serve? Sure. So uh, last year, 
I was tapped to rejuvenate what the district had termed the ALC, which stood for Alternative Learning Center. It had been housed in a variety of places. Uh, it had been in a trailer. It had been in a small building. It had been a school within a school uh, on two separate occasions, actually at the end of its livelihood. And then it was completely phased out. My superintendent felt like I had the heart and love for working with at-risk students that was required to really do justice for the school and, and an overall program. So she said, do with it what you will. And the first thing I did was change the name because I felt like there was a stigma attached to it for both the students and staff assigned to it. I did some research. You know, I went to visit a couple of schools in neighboring districts that were essentially alternative learning schools for their district. So they didn't outsource students. And I kind of realized like they all had a little acronym, like it, it wasn't uh, named or these schools weren't named after uh, pioneers in education or historical figures. They all had acronyms that were essentially the mission of the school. So I worked to try to create an acronym. I asked my son, you know, give me give me something because I, I couldn't think of anything. And I'm trying to hurry up, you know, so, so I can get the ball rolling. And he said, what about Anchor? I was like, hmm, what can I do with that? And Anchor became the name, and it stands for Achieving Knowledge and Citizenship Through Hope, Opportunities, and Resilience. I wanted students to walk out of my school understanding that there will be challenges, there will be hurdles, but we are about developing snapback, and we are about providing opportunities for students intentionally to tap into their worth so that they know where to go internally and externally when they run into challenges. I'm really big on teaching students how to self-advocate, how to explore their strengths, and also develop their areas that are deficient. It sounds like you really have the heart and love for this program. I know that you're really good at it. And <laughs> I don't know if it was meant for your good, but the students have definitely benefited from it. And I just really love how you have taken that negative st stigma and you've created anchor. My husband, he retired as a middle school teacher and he would always talk about the kids in the basement mm -hmm. and, and it had that negative connotation, but they were actually in the basement of the school. We create these situations, unintended consequences where you're trying to create programming for the students, but the stigma and the negativity around it does not necessarily help them to grow. So I'm oh, just absolutely. happy to hear you talk about that. And kudos to your son. I believe anybody can be used. And so he allowed himself to be used. Uh, it, I don't know if I asked him for, for some insight or some inspiration today, if he will be as helpful, but he was. <laughs> and so I am thankful. Um, and I do have to say, I have a wonderful superintendent that believes in second chances. In all honesty, the when I took over the school last year, we were in a basement, but we were in a basement while she was rehabbing a building where the school had been in the past. So now we're in that building. It's a beautiful little building. She made sure that no corners were cut. I have to say, I feel like we have the best building in the district right now. You know, that environment makes a big difference. Can you talk a little bit about how that environment may have changed and changed their attitude towards learning? So surprisingly, the doors opened during COVID. However, our district is really committed to 
allowing opportunity, employment opportunities for previous students. So my buildings and grounds person was a student in the former ALC in the same building that I'm in. He said to me, he said, you know, Kawan, if I had had this kind of environment, he said, I don't think I would have acted the same. I have had some parent meetings in our new building. The parent and students were both, you know, in awe. And they, because one of my students returned from last year. So he was very impressed with the new structure. I, I can't say for certain yet how our students have changed because they're still at home. But I can tell you that coming from a former student that, that was actually a product of the district's old alternative learning school, you know, just spoke very highly of our new structure. How have you and your students been supported academically or with other needs by the rest of the district or other teachers or the community? It, you know what? It's just, I almost say it's almost too easy. It's been amazing. It really has been amazing. The school board, um, I have a school board member. She's actually the vice president who is a social worker. So she really believes in um, trauma-informed practices and supporting students who are at risk. The school board's president was my former buildings and grounds person, uh, her son, her son, and her husband works on the buildings and grounds team as well. And they are amazing. You know, they'll, they'll say, listen, come on, I think you need this. And, you know, like, we know what you want. We know what kind of person you are. So we really want to support your building in terms of the aesthetics and the grounds. As it relates to uh, instruction, I, I have a wonderful relationship with the director of teaching and learning and curriculum and instruction. They are open to my suggestions. For example, in our district, our middle school students all have, in our traditional schools, they all have physical education, and a unified arts class. But they are in a building where there's a library and there is a media person. So my students didn't have any access to media support or someone who's a media specialist. And I thought that that was important because I have students that will be transitioning to high school and they need to be able to navigate the internet responsibly and put together presentations. And so I just simply went to our assistant superintendent and said, hey, if we are about providing equal opportunity and equity, then I need to have that kind of support. And so we sat down and we looked at schedules and my kids have media support now. So, you know, we, we have these conversations often as it relates to my students' needs. And again, the district and community has been very, very supportive. This is good. So they're really benefited, benefiting from having you. And working with students who need additional support, what other types of support might they have? And how are they receiving these support systems in a remote setting? Like I said, our kids are at risk. And my goal is to intentionally give them support. And when I say intentionally, it's not a one and done. So uh, one of the other resources that I advocated for was social work. Initially, our kids last year, they had group social work twice a week. And then I realized we, we really had some students that needed individualized social work for a number of reasons. Sometimes it really, they, they had a need for social work because they experienced some trauma. But I have some other students who just needed some support in their self-esteem and developing their own self, self-worth. We now have a social worker who provides that individualized social work for students. And those kids were being missed in a traditional setting. They never had that. And that's one of the reasons why they 
have been placed in my program. I'll go and be on the doors. Christmas, you know, I go knock on the doors of, um, there's a family entertainment center and say, hey, this is who I am. I think it would be a great opportunity for you to donate to a couple of gift cards for my students. They deserve it. And I walked out with gift cards. Moraine Valley has a branch in Blue Island, which is the side of the district where my building is. I want our kids to know that there are possibilities for post-secondary education opportunities, but then there are also resources in the community. And so we had a walking field trip there and they got an opportunity to familiarize themselves with that campus and they learned a lot. So, so middle grades is difficult all in itself. It's a difficult phase in any student's life. And then to add these additional challenges to the students, I imagine in a regular school setting, it might be difficult to go to the counselor, to go to the social worker, to get additional help because there's that added stigma. You don't want your friends to mm -hmm. see you receiving these services. Do you find that through now this remote outreach that students are more accepting of those services? Yes, I will say that because, first of all, as I said, it's a part of their schedule. At the end of the day, we have what we call WIN time, uh, and that's an acronym for what I need now. During that time, each student, one day a week, it meets with the counselor. If they're not with the counselor, then they're with uh, their teacher and some small group instruction, or they're working individually on, in a program that supports our curriculum. So it might be a program to support our math curriculum or reading curriculum. They develop that relationship and they know that, hey, my time is on Tuesday and that's my personal time to speak to our social worker. And when they transition out of my school and they return to their school, we continue to provide layers of support where I meet with the student along with our social worker or counselor just to talk about some of the skills that they've learned. If they were placed in my school because of behavior or making a poor choice, you know, we kind of talk about some of those triggers and if they're using, continuing to use some of the strategies that they've learned while they were in my school. If they are placed in my school because of school refusal and excessive absences. You know, we sit down, we look at, at their attendance. How are you looking in terms of target? Have you been on time? How are you looking in terms of attendance? We celebrate. We keep that relationship going. We are talking to Kawana Sanders about the impact of COVID from an administrative perspective, but also so many great things that are happening in your district with special services for a number of different students who need the services. I do want to flip just a little bit because now you are pursuing additional degrees. You're working on your doctorate. Tell us about your experience with the graduate program at GSU. My experience in Governor State University's uh, interdisciplinary leadership program has really opened me up to look at different disciplines or careers as a resource. I've been in education for over 20 years. And so anytime I've ever had a question or thought, hmm, who can I reach out to for some kind of um, insight 
I've always leaned to educators. Being in our INLD program, I now open myself up to thinking, you know what, there's some folks in non-for-profit that can help me. As an, an administrator, when we think about stakeholders, I think immediately we think about students, staff, and parents. But there are a lot of community stakeholders that I know go untapped. And it's not because we don't believe that they are important. I think a lot of it has to do with not really understanding how to bring them on board. This experience in the GSU INLD program has helped me learn. There are some ways that I can go about bringing in community stakeholders and better dealing with some crisis management issues that I know have come my way um, that I probably could have done a little better with in terms of community outreach and stakeholders. So it's, it's been very enlightening and I'm just looking to continue to grow. I love how those different perspectives really add value to what you're doing. Talk more about your research focus and what you're hoping to impact. Ultimately, I would like to impact the community, the family involvement. Here's how my change in focus shifted. All of us have seen the racial tension in this country. I started out in Chicago, so every student that I touched for the most part looked like me, as well as the parents. When I came to my district that I am in now, I have a variety of students and families that I serve. When some of the shoot shootings of unarmed Black men came to the forefront. Our conversations privately with some of my colleagues were very different than the conversations that we had publicly with some of our colleagues that don't look like us. One of the things that I kept thinking was, if I was still in my former district where all of the kids looked like me, we would be responding differently to students and allowing a different forum for conversation. Then I started to think about some of the interactions that I had with families and some of the interactions that my white colleagues were having with families. And it just made me begin to, and some of my parents now, and it just made me begin to think that our issues right now as administrators are bigger than just the academics. We really need to get to the hearts of our students and figure out how to embrace our families if we really want to see our students thrive and be successful. And a way to do that is make sure that there are equitable opportunities for all students and their families and also improve our cultural competency. And it's not just about race and ethnicity, but it's also about our uh, classism. It's about income levels. I think as educators, we work very hard to make sure that we are content knowledge and we are strong in best practices, but we don't do enough to make sure that we understand our clients and especially as they evolve. So fast forward to where I am now, because at one point I really wanted to look at cultural competency and how it impacted literacy gains for middle school male students. Now, I want to look at how cultural competency is in, has impacted family involvement for students. Good. So I'm, I'm putting some things together here. And you talked about your INLD program, the interdisciplinary part, and how working with the not-for-profits and higher education, how that's really added value to what you're learning. And now you find yourself where now you 
need this collaborative approach, right, to be able to help these students and get over some of these hurdles. So how might we hurdle or capitalize on the collaboration across disciplines to make some of these things happen that you want to see happen? Yeah, I think that the non-for-profits for sure has a lot to offer anybody that is seeking to aspire a district level position. What is a school but a non-for-profit organization? And so looking at in terms of extending our reach for resources, grant writing, fostering that collaborative, you know, hands-on approach that a lot of non-for-profits are, I think, known for. I, I just think that this is a perfect marriage, at least between superintendencies and non-for-profits. I don't know enough about higher ed, but certainly non-for-profits and superintendents, there's a lot to learn from one another. What, in your experience, has called you to focus on your research study and this topic of working with at-risk or marginalized or trying to help these students? I think, honestly, it just starts from my beginnings. I mean, on paper, I I am at risk all day long. I I grew up. I, I say the same thing. And I think it's fortunate for me that I didn't know that I was at risk. For sure. You know, so hopefully, and that's what you're doing, you're changing that environment for your students so that, you know, they don't get in their mind that this is what your goal is and you have to rise to this level because you're at risk and this is the only, this is where you can go and this is your category. So yes, on paper, you look good right now, right? <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. Talk about that. You know, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. My parents divorced when I was in the third grade. My mother was not gainfully employed. You know, I knew food stamps very, very well. I knew how to make a a lot out of a little. And it didn't become apparent to me until probably my middle school years that, hey, you might be poor. What are you going to do to change your trajectory? I grew up in a neighborhood where crack became the market for employment. It became a very rough neighborhood. So it was resilience that kept me going and I, you know, and a lot of prayer and favor. When I moved into education and I saw students trying to overcome some of the very same obstacles that I had to overcome, I think I became drawn to them. I think my successes came from relationships that I built with parents. And so moving into this district and seeing that those relationships with the parents of students that needed it most were not, have not been formed. The light bulb clicked recently with me that that's what you need to focus on. Or what kind of research can you do around cultural competency for educators and leaders that hopefully or or can hopefully develop stronger family involvement, not just with the families that want to put on the plays or that want to support the students, you know, endeavors, but with, with those family members that might possibly not know how to reach out to schools for support or may feel as if they aren't welcome in schools. I'm just hoping that the work that I do will have a positive impact because Families, we need families. I mean, they are an extension of the work that we do with their kids. That's amazing. The study that you're going to be doing or you've started thinking about working with families, you're starting to think about that end result. Do you have a picture, a vision of what that's going to look like, what you hope to accomplish? In a perfect world, what I would love to do with 
the research is, first of all, figure out, you know, how to train our teachers and uh, or possibly put together some resources to develop their cultural competency. Because I really, I think all teachers want to do well. I don't think the teachers wake up in the morning and say, I don't want to do well. I don't want to involve parents, but they don't know how. My hope is that I can work with our HR director to possibly put together maybe uh, some professional development resources or, or some speakers to help develop the cultural competency necessary for teachers and administrators to successfully reach out to all parents and to develop some robust relationships with parents, especially those of at-risk students. So I do have a question about at-risk children, because like you, I grew up at risk. And again, you know, I'm happy that I was never categorized as at risk because I think that would have put limits on me. So it's great that you're doing the things that you do. And it's important that we provide access to these students so that they can see all of their possibilities. You kind of alluded to being a product of your environment. Luckily, you didn't fall into those things that you saw in your environment. So how do we change that environment for students and give them access? I mean, we have them for what, six, seven hours a day. That's a large part of their day. So how do we kind of take that time and we change some of their environment? We change their access. We can't do it without parents. And how do we do that a little bit for our parents too, so that parents can see something different? So it's interesting that you said that you, neither one of us knew that we were at risk. I think that had everything to do with our students, our peers that were around us because they were just like us. We didn't seem any more vulnerable or marginalized than the next person because they were just like us. And then also the teachers and the adults that are, were around us. So how do we do it? We do it by beginning to have, in my opinion, honest conversations with the teachers that are in front of the students about equity and some of the biases that we have so that we can begin to develop that cultural competency that is going to embolden those at-risk students to tap into their strengths and feel confident in their future. Because I think that that's one of our biggest barriers for students who are at risk. They don't believe or they don't see that they can do better. We've got to begin to figure out, especially some of us who don't necessarily have the cultural competency to work with some of those at-risk students, how to inspire those students. Again, just like I don't believe that teachers wake up every day to not be successful, neither do students. Everybody wants to win. That's one of the things that I believe we have to do. We have to start having some honest conversations. And, and it has to start very early. It's just not a conversation that you have in high schools. Uh, our middle school students and our middle school teachers have to be aware that we we serve all kinds of students. We have to serve their strengths. We have to be sensitive to all groups' needs. And I think that that's, that's the best way to go about serving those. Efforts. And I can see that there's hope on the horizon. ISB adopted culturally responsive teaching and learning standards, and we're implementing that now into our curriculum at Governor State University. So I'm hoping that what you will get in new teachers is a teacher that's more receptive and more understanding and really paying attention to those social emotional needs of the student. That is our hope that we are really building 
a much better teacher, you know, because students, they remember how you made them feel, not how, mm -hmm. you know, not what you taught. So I do see a silver lining there. Also thinking post COVID, even though we're all working hard, I know I'm working harder. I'm putting in more hours now during COVID because my computer is always in front of me, but it's also a reflective period for me too. And I'm always thinking about how I can be better. What's going to be different? What can I retain? Post-COVID, what do you think will need the most attention? What do you think you're going to have to do with your students post-COVID now that you've really had a chance to think about it? I think our kids have gotten used to now being at home. It's, it's going to be hard to really get them to be able to sit in a classroom for 40-minute intervals and focus on a teacher trying to deliver a lesson in person. So I really believe that that's one of the, uh, we have to be flexible in our students' response to those 40-minute blocks of instruction. We're going to have to build some endurance. The first, you know, I've had conversations. Our district is strategically bringing back our students who are in need of face-to-face -face instruction. So that are all our LR3 students and then my students because they are in need of face-to-face -face instruction. And so I've had conversations with, you know, my staff and said, listen, for the first two weeks, let's not try to deliver anything new. We're not doing a lot of heavy lifting. We are just acclimating them to being back in school. And so that's what we're working on. If we had sound effects or something, you could see my face is like, eek. That's not something that I even thought about. That is going to be a difficult transition. When I think about that, I'm like, Oh, please, I hope we don't go back during the wintertime. I don't even want to drive. I don't want to drive in the wintertime. But when you think about that transition, that's going to be, it's going to be different. We dress differently. We may wake up at different times, go to bed at different times as a result of this. This is nine months in. So I imagine that we really will have to be flexible and we will have to ease into that. I do have another question. I know that we're, we're ending here soon, but Kawan, I have a question for you about attendance, even discipline, suspension. How have you seen that change during this period of time? When we first went home in March, that was rough. So from March to May, it was rough. We were just flailing in the water as far as attendance went and platforms working correctly. We didn't even have a district-wide structure for keeping attendance. It was like, okay, this invisible enemy is out there. Get a uh, Chromebook and everybody go home. I mean, there was a plan, but we we had an academic plan and, and it was pulled together as quickly as possible, as best as possible. Kudos to our district. But really and truly, it was just like, let's get everybody home and stay safe. So we didn't have a plan for it attendance. Kids kind of came, they did, they didn't. But returning to, honestly, we didn't have to suspend anybody or anything like that. Everybody was okay. We had our uh, community circle. We would, I would open up the week and close the week with a community circle. So my kids came for a community circle on Fridays. That was interesting. Monday, not so much. But on Fridays, the end of the day, I, I would see my kids. So that was a little interesting. The school year opened and attendance was hard. It, it really was hard for some students. I had students placed in my school because they had made a couple poor choices in their traditional setting. One of the criteria for being returned to your traditional school or your sending school is you have to have 95% attendance. 
I tend to get that 95%. However, students log on, don't always log on on time. And it's hard to really penalize students for because much like we're having internet connection problems, that may be the case as well. You know, I'll talk to them, I call, but as soon as that they don't show up, so either I'm calling, a paraprofessional is calling, and which, you know, so we stay on top of it and we do speak to parents or parents will text me and say, hey, I'm sorry, such and such isn't on line uh, right now because we're having some connectivity issues because they know that we will reach out. What doesn't get inspected gets ignored or something like that. Our tendency to stay on top of attendance has helped uh, immensely. Suspending? No, I'm, I'm not suspending anybody. They're already at home. What, what, what would I be doing? <laughs> Things are looking up. But I don't have a problem having conversations with parents and saying, okay, you know what? This virtual conversation isn't working. I need you to come in and we need to have a face-to-face -face and a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. This is food for thought. We didn't have to suspend kids, so we were able to continue learning. So once we're face-to-face, -face, how do we transition to that? So just food for thought to where we can continue to educate kids in spite of some of those behaviors. So for me, I, again, I am the alternative learning site in the district. My building is in place to teach you how to make better choices. So I have a lot more leeway. Oh, so you um, have a lot of leniency and how do. to be good citizens. I do. You will be in school. In the beginning, a lot of our kids that are placed in the school, they don't want to be in school anyway. So I'm not going to give you that out. You know, you, you're coming back. You may not be in class. You may serve in school. Now, I do do a lot of in-school suspensions. Well, I don't want to say a lot, but I do exercise that right. Seldom will you. You have to fight to, to in order to be suspended out of school. And I have had to do that. You're going to learn. You're going to be here and you will learn. That's the philosophy. That's We want to embrace these students. Absolutely, because you can't learn how to do school from home. So my philosophy is I'm going to teach you how to do school you know, despite whether or not you like the person next to you or the person in front of you. But I, my job is to teach you how to do school so you can go on and be successful at whatever it is that you choose to do. Before we begin wrapping up this time with you, I want to say that I've been incredibly inspired by mm -hmm. what you've told us. I know that our listeners will be too. Who inspires you? Tell us a little bit about what you're reading now. I ended up talking to some colleagues. And so now we're talking about how we can foster cultural competency in our district. And we've been putting together like a, a resource. So we have a Google Drive of resources to educate ourselves before we try to foster this movement, I guess. So I've been looking at a lot of TED Talks. There was one, I think, is The Truth About Racism by John Bywin. It's been pretty good. Committing to Culture is a book that I just read in one of my classes by Whitaker and Grunert, I believe. Hanging In, uh, published by ASCD. I like a lot of their books. And it is a book about dealing with students who challenge us. This collection of work really represents the work that I, I want to do. And that's what I'm reading. That's what's inspiring me. In real life, who inspires me? My children. You know, I have two Black sons. And they, they inspire me. And my nieces and nephews inspire me. I just want to try to provide for the students that I serve the same experiences that I would want for my own. That, that became my philosophy. If it wasn't good enough for Caleb and Najee, it wasn't going to be good enough for the kids that I have to serve. 
Well, we really appreciate you. You're amazing already. We're looking forward to you doing even more amazing things and the impact that you're going to have on students, their entire community. So we're just grateful to you and Aww. all the work that you do. Thank you so much for being with us today. Celebrate safe and healthy new year. We've got great things that are going to be happening. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this. <laughs> thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. <laughs>